When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There is this video that, to me, sums up the absurdity of the moment we're in right now as we wait around for election results to be finalized. Good afternoon. I'm Joe Gloria, Registrar of Voters in Clark County, Nevada. Thank you for being here this afternoon. This video was shot in front of a Las Vegas, Nevada government building. The local registrar is updating reporters on the county vote tally. He's in a purple shirt with the Clark County seal on it. His voice has this soporific quality, even when he's conveying urgency. We are working feverishly to get all of that counted so that we can make an accurate report. The registrar gives a short update. And then just as he starts taking questions, he gets cut off by a guy in a barbecue beer and freedom T-shirt, warning that Joe Biden is trying to steal the election. The Biden crime family stealing the election. The media is covering up. The Biden crime family stealing this election. The media is covering up. The Biden crime family stealing this election. As all this is happening, the registrar barely reacts. He just waits. And after the protester seems to lose interest and wander away, the registrar calmly continues as if nothing's happened. Where were we? What was the last question? The question was how many ballots are outstanding yet to count? I don't have an accurate number to give you, and I don't want to give you... As of the time I'm recording this, it's about midnight on the East Coast. Nevada still hasn't been called for President Trump or Joe Biden. Neither had Pennsylvania or Georgia or North Carolina, which means the drama of election night has started playing out all over the country in municipal office parks like this one where workers are counting up the returns one by one, an essential and often tedious task. Waiting around is frustrating for everyone. So what happens now? We do have hints. Well, right now, it sure looks like Joe Biden is the next president. Will Salatan writes about politics for Slate, says at the moment, Joe Biden's path to victory is just much smoother than President Trump's. He has uh, overcome his deficits in the states that he had to win, the blue wall states of Michigan and Wisconsin. He doesn't actually need to get Pennsylvania, although I believe in the end he will. I wanted to talk to Will to make sense of this particular moment. By the time you hear this, Joe Biden very much might be the president-elect of the United States. Or the tide could have turned against him in some unexpected way. Or maybe even we'll be in this exact same spot, waiting. 
So I asked Will, why all this uncertainty when polls projected this race would not be all that close? Okay, I was the person at Slate who was assigned to write the don't panic piece. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've had other folks who everyone else at Slate was panicking. I was not because I knew, of course, that I could trust the polls. I told myself and I told everyone else that, you know, after 2016, these pollsters looked at the data. They looked at their mistakes. They learned their lessons. Absolutely. They weren't going to let another Hillary Clinton implosion happen to them again. So going into this election, Joe Biden had leads of five points in Pennsylvania, of more than eight points in Michigan and Wisconsin. And I told everybody, don't worry about Michigan and Wisconsin. Those leads are just way too big for a polling error to cost Biden the states. And darn if he didn't come close to it. I mean, given how close it was or is, I wonder if you have shifted your opinions about polling. I can't defend how badly the polls appear at this point to have missed the state-by-state results in some of these states. And it's different from state to state, obviously. Um, I mean, if the numbers turn out the way it appears they will turn out, the ballots, the ballot numbers in Michigan and Wisconsin, then that's, you know, that's a miss of, of novel proportions. So I can't defend the miss, but I will defend the science of polling. Because what pollsters do is they come in with a theory about what the electorate is going to look like, and then they encounter the data of the election, and often they're surprised. And what you do when you're surprised in science is you adjust your theory to fit the data, and then you try again with a slightly different hypothesis about who's going to show up in the election. So the polls will get better, and they have gotten better. They got better in 2018 as a result of adjusting for their errors in 2016. And we still do not know and will not know for some time in what way the pollsters screwed up uh, calculating who was going to show up in this election. Well, I'm glad you brought up 2018 because there's been some chatter today that I thought was really interesting that basically <laughs> posited there's just something about Donald Trump being on the ballot that messes with these polls because the polls were off in 2016, and then they seemed to recover and be a little more on target in 2018 with the midterm elections, where you could kind of vote your heart and maybe try to send a message to Trump, but Trump himself wasn't on the ballot. And now here we are in 2020, and it seems like the polls are off again. And I wonder if you think about it like that, like this could be a Trump problem somehow, not a polling problem. That is possible, and it is certainly interesting and worth thinking about that it happened when Trump was on the ballot and didn't happen when he wasn't. But I'm sort of interested in the theory that what we are experiencing right now is an ongoing political realignment, and that Donald Trump simply attracts a different kind of voter from what the Republican Party has traditionally attracted. Uh, and perhaps pollsters are trying to learn how to anticipate and measure this kind of voter. I think it's interesting you put it like that, because I know you were looking at the exit polls and sort of trying to look at, okay, how do we understand what happened here by looking at who actually turned out to vote? And when I looked at that data and you see the president putting together, you know, one of the most diverse collections of 
voters and supporters in many years for the Republicans. The Republican Party that voted for Trump seems to be really the party of the working class, which of course was the traditionally Democratic voter. And then you look at who voted for Biden, and you're looking at people who are wealthier, more college-educated. I wonder if you see it the same way. Well, the exit poll data that we have so far are confusing. Um, In some ways, Biden did better than Hillary Clinton at attracting working people, um, getting non-college white voters, getting voters from households that made less than $100,000, getting union households. I mean, that was sort of Joe Biden's job in the Midwest, and he did it. But clearly, he got swamped by a whole lot of other people who showed up and just drowned out those gains. More What Next after the break. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Exit polling data is very early at this point. Researchers will actually continue to adjust it as they learn more about who voted and how. But it does seem to show these demographic shifts. Like in 2016, Trump's biggest base of support was white, in particular white women who delivered for him in a major way. And those gains the president made with communities of color, they were real, even if they weren't big enough to be decisive. I think Democrats were surprised by how much Trump was able to add to that base with support from Blacks and Latinos. Uh, and when I say Latino, I mean with an O, I mean men. Hmm. Uh, he Trump does better with men in general, but he did better than Hillary Clinton uh, in both categories, Black and Latino. And he ended up getting, according to the preliminary exit poll numbers, 18% of Black men and 36% of Latino men. And I certainly thought, and I think a lot of my friends and colleagues thought, look, Donald Trump is a bigot. Uh, he may not be... You can argue about whether he is personally racist, but he is certainly a racial demagogue. He is certainly out there talking about, you know, Mexican immigrants and Somalis 
and uh, how, you know, Cory Booker, the black senator from New Jersey, is going to bring low-income housing projects to your suburb. So th the dog whistles are all over the place, right, with this guy. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, so therefore, black people and Latinos are going to vote against him. But in fact, he did surprisingly well with them. And that is certainly a result that a lot of Democrats need to reflect on and ask themselves. You know, they just cannot count on the... Um, how repellent the opponent is, how overtly racist he is to drive black and brown people, people of color to vote Democratic. Democrats need to figure out how to deliver a more affirmative message that attracts uh, people of color to the, the party and its candidates. Yeah, because I have seen criticism that the Biden campaign invested so much in driving up turnout in, say, like Western Pennsylvania versus, you know, investing in Philadelphia, where there's a lot of traditional Democratic voters and Black men, where if you invested in getting those folks to turn out, it probably would pay real dividends for you. I wonder if you see that as something the Democrats may be mulling moving forward. Like, who do we who do we focus our attention on? Yeah, I don't know if it's so much a matter of whether they thought about it or tried, which I think they did do, or whether it's a matter of execution. Because I can tell you that I, you know, listened to a whole bunch of and watched a whole bunch of Joe Biden um, events. They did these online events, or sometimes they went around the country and they did, uh, you know, a, a speech with cars waiting, people waiting in their cars to avoid spreading the coronavirus. And so many of these events were targeted at black voters. They were in black areas. They were they went city by city. Uh, they was and where Joe Biden wasn't doing it, Kamala Harris, the vice presidential candidate, was doing it, or Barack Obama was being brought in to do it. But so many events were targeted at black folks, and it may just be that what they said was not compelling enough. Joe Biden had his own issues about being able to connect with those voters. Right. He famously had that moment where he says, if you vote for Trump and not me, you're not black. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with you. I mean, it is this funny thing where for years, Democrats have been talking about how they are it's just going to happen that they are the majority party because, of course, we're this diverse coalition and the black electorate, the Latino electorate, they will join us. And it seems like looking at this result, what happened, it seems like this support, the lesson to me is it's not automatic. Yeah. I mean, one of the critiques of Democrats and progressives generally is that they practice what's known as identity politics. They assume, according to this theory, that if you are Black or Latino or Asian or gay, whatever it is, you are going to vote according to what group you belong to. Your group has certain interests and therefore you're aligned with the Democratic Party. It may just be that people are just more complicated than that that some people respond to these identity politics messages. But some, I mean, I grew up in Texas, okay? And the kids that I grew up with had names like Gonzalez and Rodriguez, and they were functionally white. They were not distinguishable. They were, they might be classified as Hispanic or Latino, but they did not think of themselves that way. So that's one thing. The other thing is just the diversity of these identities. I mean, we've gotten on the left to like talking about 
Hispanics, Latinos, like they're all one thing. And that just ain't so, right? I mean, if you go to Florida, there are, yeah, there are Mexican Americans in some places, there are Salvadorans, there are Venezuelans, there are Cubans. And the Cubans are not necessarily, the Cuban Americans in Florida do not vote the way that a lot of Mexican Americans do in that state or other states, right? They are conservative in many ways. They are anti-communist and they were, they responded to Donald Trump's anti-socialist message. And if you go state by state, there may be differences, even of people of exactly the same national origin in the way that they vote. You know, Arizona is not Florida. We just learned that quite clearly. Hmm. You've written that looking at the exit polls, the electorate it seems to be more conservative than it was in 2016. And, you know, given that, you're actually kind of surprised that Biden is seems to be winning the popular vote by as much as he is. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and, and what that means to you? Yeah. Now, I, I should stipulate up front that by nature, I am a moderate. Um, and so I, I, I tend to favor explanations uh, that talk about reaching out to people in the middle of the electorate. So I'm just going to stipulate that up front. Having said that, the data show from the exit polls that a, there was a greater ratio of conservative voters to liberal voters in terms of self-definition. Um, so given that, Joe Biden did better than Hillary Clinton. And the way he did that, the way he exceeded her results in a more difficult electorate was by attracting independent voters. Hillary Clinton lost independent voters narrowly, but she lost them to Donald Trump in 2016. Joe Biden comes along, faces the same opponent in 2020, who's now an incumbent, so it's in some ways more difficult. And Joe Biden wins independent voters by, according to the initial numbers, about 14%. And that was decisive. That was absolutely decisive because if he hadn't won them nationally that way, he would not have pulled out these states. He would not have pulled out states like Michigan and Wisconsin. So it was hugely important that Joe Biden reached voters in the middle. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, though, when I like hear you talk about it, because, you know, Joe Biden he was meant to appeal <laughs> to conservatives. And of course, so is President Trump. So in some ways, I guess maybe it shouldn't surprise us that the electorate is more conservative. That's exactly who these candidates were speaking to. Yeah. And if you were on the left, if you are on the left of the Democratic Party and you've just been watching this result and you thought it was going to be a cakewalk, you went along and nominated Joe Biden, the candidate of the middle, because he was going to attract Republican crossovers. He was going to attract independents. He was going to win the election handily. And then you see this absolute nail biter. You've got to be thinking to yourself, man, will you try us next time? Will you try Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or somebody who really fires up the left? Because then maybe instead of you know, scratching and clawing for every voter in the middle, every independent voter, every potentially disaffected Republican, maybe next time we could turn out our people, people on the left, and get a more left-leaning electorate, in which case it would be easier. So we don't really have a, an election yet to test that theory, but we might get one next time or after that. Because there's just going to be so much soul searching among the Democrats after this. If you are a leftist, if you are a progressive, and you feel like the Democratic Party has been spending too much time in the middle, um, this nail biter of an election is kind of your opportunity to say, look, we just tried it your way, and we darn near died when we shouldn't have. So let's try it our way. On Wednesday afternoon, Joe Biden made a speech urging his supporters to stay the course. 
But he also made a point of reaching out to all Americans, said he would be a president for everyone, regardless of political party. Once this election is finalized and behind us, it'll be time for us to do what we've always done as Americans, to put the harsh rhetoric of the campaign behind us, to lower the temperature, to see each other again, to listen to one another, to to hear each other again, and respect and care for one another, to unite, to heal, to come together as a nation. This is typical Biden. He's known for reaching across the aisle. But I asked Will, if Biden does pull this win out, how would this style work in a post-2020 Washington, especially with the Senate looking increasingly out of reach for Democrats? I was one of the people who thought to myself, you know what, if Democrats take the Senate, Joe Biden is just too much of a compromiser to really join with other Democrats in the Senate and push through a Democratic agenda because he's going to his instinct is going to be to work with the Republicans. Well, as it turned out, he's got a Republican Senate, probably. And so weirdly, Joe Biden's habit of working with everybody personally and forgiving the Republicans and let's all get together and kumbaya, that's actually going to be appropriate given his circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder, though, (laughs) will that still work? Like that has become so broken over the last decade or so. It just kind of rotted this compromise idea during the Obama years. And so the real question for me is whether that idea makes a comeback or whether the Republicans feel so empowered that there's a kind of digging in on the full blockade of anything that a Democrat wants done. Yeah, I mean, there is there has been a an idea among moderate Republicans, the sensible Republicans, that once Donald Trump is gone, we're all going to go back to behaving in a more normal way. They think of, you know, the the behavior um, of the George W. Bush years, for example. We're not going to be as obstinate as we were to Barack Obama. We're not going to be as sycophantic as we were under Donald Trump. Um, Once you get Trump out of the picture, we'll, we'll be reasonable. Well, We're going to test that now. If Donald Trump is no longer the president, um, let's see what Republicans do. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I felt like this potential outcome where you have a narrow victory for Biden, but the Senate remains Republican, the House gets a little bit closer. In some ways, it's an ideal outcome for Republicans because you're getting rid of a president who maybe problematic for you and unpredictable. You are going to hand Joe Biden a terrible economy and then basically keep him from doing anything about it. And then you can campaign against him really hard in 2024. So when I saw folks like Mitch McConnell saying we're going to count all the votes, I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Mary, you just depressed me beyond words. So, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, you, you, you've just drawn up a very, uh, very not just plausible but likely scenario. Um, and given past Republican behavior, I, I would, I would expect something like that. Um, the, the only thing to go against it is, does Joe Biden actually have personal relationships that he can use to pull over? Let's say this is a really close Senate. Let's say it's like a 51-49 Republican Senate. 
does he have the ability to sweet talk a couple of Republicans like Susan Collins, who is an extremely moderate person and has voted with Democrats before to get some things done? Because he doesn't need the whole Republican caucus. He just needs a couple of people. I mean, a lot of the people that Joe Biden would have talked to in the Republican Senate caucus to get things done are gone, right? They were people like Jeff Flake, the former Arizona senator who just couldn't deal with Donald Trump. So we'll see if Joe Biden can work a little bit of personal magic. It would be charming, wouldn't it? So before we go, we should just talk about what happens now. Because while it looks strong for Biden, it's not called. And the Trump administration has made it very clear that they're going to fight tooth and nail in a lot of different ways <laughs> um, that don't 100 percent like all jibe together to sort of try to get their outcome. Like you look at Arizona, they want, you know, extra counting in Arizona. And then in Pennsylvania, they're asking to stop counting. So it's it's like a <laughs> really diverse ask that it doesn't make a ton of sense. It doesn't really hang together as one legal theory. But what do the next few weeks look like? What's partly interesting about this to me is that Trump is trying to do his usual lying and fudging and self-contradiction, right? In one state, we're going to try to stop the vote count. In another state, we're going to try to make you finish and add, you know, find more ballots for us. And he gets away with that as a politician on the campaign trail. Uh, he does that all the time. But this is these are the courts, right? In the, and in the courts, um, making one argument in one context and the opposite argument in another context, um, counting the votes here but not there, that looks really bad. And that actually hurts you. I mean, judges look at that kind of thing and say, you know, you're just demonstrating um, a complete lack of sincerity about this principle. Um, so I don't expect Trump to succeed in this. And I also think it's quite notable that he's not getting support from a lot of other Republicans outside his his circle of sycophants in some of these legal challenges or for some of these legal challenges. So I don't think he can do enough to uh, to stop the process. It is a state process. Will Salatan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Mary. Will Salatan covers national politics for Slate. And that's the show. Shout out to everyone who hung in there with us this week. Whew, it's been a long one. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Danielle Hewitt, and Elena Schwartz. We're getting a little help this week from Franny Kelly. We are blessed to have Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery as our spirit guides. And I'm Mary Harris. We'll be back with more What Next next week.